Hello, everybody. Thanks for checking into localjobnetwork.com radio. I'm Tim Muma, and this is I Want to Be A, where each episode we finish the title with a new profession or industry, bringing you an experienced professional to give us the inside dish. In this episode, I want to be a substance abuse counselor. And to talk about the profession, we've called upon Stephen Ratcliffe, a licensed professional clinical counselor and one with experience in the substance abuse realm. And he works for Families First Therapy in New Mexico. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Hello. Obviously, it's a, it's an area that people probably get into for different reasons. Might be they had an experience of their own. Uh, might be they just have that sort of intrinsic idea of helping others. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into it, uh, you know, why, why you kind of got into this career path for yourself. I was in college at the time and I'm actually studying in a different career path. And I was interested in giving back to the community a little bit. So I started volunteering at an inner city mission in downtown L.A., doing a number of different classes and job skills, kind of training, and became very interested in the helping field in general. The um, majority of the people I was working with there were addicted to different drugs or alcohol and had been uh, struggling with those addictions for upwards of 20 or 30 years for the majority. Um, and that's where I became interested. So when you go into something like this, I guess, is there a way to define who exactly you're working with? I mean, is there a finite parameter of who you would actually deal with when it comes to substance abuse or how they get there? I mean, just, I guess, give the listeners an idea of, of who exactly we'd be talking about in terms of who you'd be helping. Well, I'm more than just a substance abuse counselor. I do general mental health counseling as well, so that kind of expands it beyond. Um, but typically, substance abuse counselors work with people who are struggling with either problematic substance use of drugs or alcohol or addiction to these things. Substance abuse counselors may also work with people that are having process addictions, such as gambling addiction or things like that. Okay. But the, their, their clientele may be of a variety of demographics or occupations, depending on uh, the setting the substance abuse counselor is working in. The clientele change kind of their presentation quite a bit, but generally that, that, that's what the job would entail. For those that would be interested, I guess, what was the educational background for yourself? What would individuals be looking at in terms of going through school and acquiring the, the necessary skills and degrees or certifications to be able to work in this field? Okay. Uh, a lot of that varies by state. Uh, myself, I have a master's in clinical psychology and am licensed uh, independently in the state of New Mexico. Um, so that, that is a, a higher level of license than typically substance abuse counselors have and encapsulates both general mental health and substance abuse counseling. Okay. Uh, however, substance abuse counselors typically, uh, you're looking at either a bachelor's or associates in the substance abuse counseling field. Hmm. At least here in New Mexico, that's what's required for licensure. Um, you are required in any state in the country to have licensure in uh, as a substance abuse counselor rather than a certification, which is a different kind of government body that you're going through. And typically, after somebody gets that initial license, they're practicing for between two and 5,000 hours under the supervision of somebody who holds an independent substance abuse counseling license. Okay. And that's just through kind of post-formal edu- um, education, uh, ongoing education and training. But after you've met those requirements, you can get independent licensure to practice independently and supervise. Okay. So you don't need a master then to be in this profession? Uh, to do substance abuse counseling specifically, no, you okay. don't. However, if you do get a master's, it cuts down the total number of hours you have to have to do supervised work. Now, that said, substance abuse counselors are not allowed to do mental health counseling. That does require uh, a minimum of a master's degree. So there's kind of a distinction there. Right. In terms of schools, and again, I know you said different, of course, different aspects of state licensures and different requirements. In your experiences, maybe people you've worked with, talked with, do you see a best path or a best grouping of schools or or how would people even go about deciding, okay, what's a good school to go to if I want to really be prepared for this field? 
the first and it does vary uh, within substance abuse counseling a fair amount. But the first step would be to check with licensure, the licensure board in your state, and all of that's available online. Just to make sure that the school does meet the requirements for licensure, there are some programs that will provide a degree. But that degree is not up to cuff for the state you're trying to get licensed in. So that would be the first step. Some states have different certification process. For instance, KCREP is common within the mental health field for master's programs. A KCREP certification um, helps guarantee that the school is up to snuff in terms of getting licensed afterwards. So just making sure that the school meets all the requirements for licensure and, and whatnot is the first step. The other step would be a strong emphasis on practicum. Any substance abuse counselor or if you're going for your master's and doing mental health counseling in addition, there's a requirement to do internships and practicums in the field. And that's very important to get some hands-on training. In fact, right. anybody who's interested, I would encourage them to do some volunteering or some interning first to see if this is really what they want to do. Um, sometimes what happens in the field can be a little bit different than what we envision it to be. Mm-hmm. What are some places people could go? I mean, is that something where uh, possibly just a local hospital? I mean, are there clinics that somebody would be interested in going if they wanted to, as you said, get a feel for what real life is as opposed to what you might believe this profession is like? Absolutely. Um, Within the medical field, because of liability reasons, there could be limitations in terms of getting internships, but there are lots of opportunities. Uh, That's where I started. I got a kind of a volunteering position that led into an internship while I was in my bachelor's study. And and I think that's probably the better route to go is just doing some hands-on field mm-hmm. experience. You don't necessarily be doing counseling, but you can possibly sit in on some groups or sit in and, and, and uh, observe some sessions. It kind of gives you a little bit more of an idea as well as to talk with people that are in the field um, to get better direction that way. Also helps in terms of getting a job later. Right, right. No, I think it's a great piece of advice for those that, that would be interested or at least have a curiosity into this field. We'll talk a little bit later about um, you know possibly applying for jobs and just help for job seekers there. But I wanted to jump into the profession a bit, give people somewhat of an idea of, again, as you said, what it might be like. Take us through the process of when you're working with someone. Uh, you know, how long do you meet? How often are you meeting? And I, again, we understand it's going to be completely dependent on the situation. But as a sort of a general idea, what's the process like for helping someone? Well, a lot of that is determined by the specific client. I, I work in an outpatient setting, and so people are coming to my office. And depending on the level of severity of their problem and how well they're functioning in life, sometimes I might meet with them for an hour every other week. Um, sometimes I'm meeting with them for three to five hours a week, oh, wow. um, depending on just what their level of need is. Mm-hmm. And then the next level higher than me would be what's called intensive outpatient services, which is nine hours of therapy a week as a minimum. And after that, you continue to graduate to higher levels of care, including partial hospitalization, whether it's daily therapy or around-the-clock care. It all varies depending upon the person's specific need. When you are working with an individual, and of course, as you said, it's all going to depend on the severity and what's going on, how do you focus on what to help them with? I mean, are you putting an emphasis on the substance itself? Is it personal issues, health concerns? What's sort of the the tact that you bring when you're working with someone that comes in? Now, for me specifically, because I do the mental health piece in addition to the substance abuse piece, it's a bit more broad, but typically substance abuse counselors you're talking about whatever the, the presenting problem is that entered them into services. So if it's alcohol, problematic alcohol use or alcohol addiction, then it would be working with that. But also what we know from the research on what is effective and what, you know, with uh, helping with substance problems, you have to do more than just deal with the addiction itself mm-hmm. or, or the problematic substance use itself. So it can, it can include other stuff such as job training or social skills or creating healthy uh, friend networks or 
you know, kind of as a whole person focus um, beyond just the, the substance itself. It could be health problems. It could be any number of different things. Because when life is going well, typically people don't have as much push forward problems with addiction. Sure. So helping somebody in that general way is, is very important. A lot of substance use counselors may uh, work in, in collaboration with a mental health provider and do family therapy or family-focused interventions, which is kind of quickly becoming one of the norms within the field. Mm-hmm. How much is dependent upon what the substance is? I mean, does that vary how you handle things? Does it vary uh, just how severe something might be, or or does that not matter as much as maybe the general person would think? It may matter somewhat. For example, uh, typically somebody recovering from heroin addiction is going to have a different level of need from somebody who's trying to stop smoking cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Those would be different levels of intervention typically. And likewise, there is some risk in terms of health and and whatnot in terms if somebody's withdrawing from long-term alcohol use. Some drugs and substances can be potentially fatal when somebody is coming off of having used it for long-term alcohol being the principal one. And so at times that mean that medically assisted detoxification is necessary. But a lot of that does vary depending upon, you know, how long the person's been using the substance, what the relationship has been, have they had bouts of sobriety before. And that's part of what a typical assessment would look like with somebody. So it does vary somewhat. How do you, I always wonder this, and I'm guessing some people come in sort of on their own volition and, and some are, I mean, they're required to, or I mean, how does that work as far as your patients go? It, it varies quite a bit. I do work pretty closely with the uh, criminal justice system and juvenile probation. And so I do have some clients that are mandated into treatment, which always does create a little bit of resistance or, right. or um, and people don't like being told what to do. Uh, there is a type of a substance use counseling called motivational interviewing, which has kind of become one of the norms within the field that specializes in addressing that resistance and responding to it. But there's a, a variety. Some people come in by themselves. Some people come in because family members or parents are concerned. Sometimes getting started can be a little bit different depending on who the person is. I've had lots of people that were mandated by court to come in and, and were very motivated and very engaged and wanted to do work. Did very good work. When it comes to some of those situations, I mean, do you see any situation where it's more difficult than another, whether it be a certain you know substance that they're abusing or a particular age of a person? You mentioned maybe juveniles or maybe it's an, an older individual. Do you see an area that's just, you know, oh, this is this is the most challenging that I typically have to deal with? It varies quite a bit, but for me personally, the biggest challenge has been uh, people that have been using for a very extended periods of time. Uh, for example, in, in Los Angeles, I worked with men and women who had been using for 20 or 30 years oh. and uh, whatever their drug of choice was. And that kind of career addiction, um, living on the street for most of that, is, is very, very pervasive in terms of its nature and can take, and sometimes it can be very tough for somebody to overcome if it's been a good chunk of their life, you know, having a relationship with, with a drug or, or uh, the drug of choice. Sure. You know, some people don't like working with juveniles because they can be a little bit defiant at times or have some attitude. Um, I, I enjoy it. Um, but that, that does vary a little bit depending upon the person. For me, the, the toughest problems tend to be the problems that have been happening for the longest period of time. Yeah, I, th- I think that probably makes sense to a lot of people. And uh, just we all know that habits of any kind can be difficult to break. And especially if you've, as you said, a, a career addiction, as you mentioned there. As a counselor then, no matter what the, the field specifically, but of course we're talking about substance abuse, how do you handle the emotional side of things? I mean, do do certain situations get to you? Is it something you have to separate yourself from? I mean, how, how do you ensure that you're able to do your work and not really get too caught up in it and it might affect you in some way? 
Sure. I mean, the reality is um, if we're doing good work, it will affect us because to, to be empathic and to really genuinely care about somebody is to kind of have some emotional vulnerability. And in, in terms of my training, one of the things that we're trained to do is have good uh, work-life boundaries, and those are imperative. And people that don't tend to, um, as best as possible, leave work at the office tend to burn out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And taking care of yourself is another thing that we're trained to, to do, and some of us do better than others. And myself, sometimes I do it better at points than in other points, but it's imperative if we're going to do good work. When I'm taking better care of myself, I'm a better counselor than when I'm not. And I think that's, that's, that's true of uh, any number of different types of counseling. The people that I see that tend to burn out the fastest are the people that don't take care of themselves and don't have good work-life boundaries. Interesting. So when you talk about obviously trying to be you know, empathetic with somebody or, or you know, kind of understand where they're coming from, can you fill us in on maybe any sort of tip or strategy and how exactly you do that? I mean, do you try to relate something in your life that's somehow comparable or how do you really feel what they're feeling, as you said, to, to, to be able to help them and, and be in their shoes? There are whole uh, whole courses of study in this. <laughs> I figure. Yeah. Now we want all the answers, though, right now from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the short of it is it's something that you develop over time and you develop to some degree in intuition, but also um, a professional competence in terms of when. One of the struggles I see a lot of counselors run into is that they tend to um, have, have had addiction struggles of their own in the past and have found that hmm. X, Y, or Z works for them. And then they say, well, this is what has to happen for somebody to find their own health and healing. And the reality is there are multiple roads of recovery and multiple roads of health and healing. So sometimes self-disclosure can be very limiting and sometimes it can be very damaging to the relationship with somebody we're doing, the counseling relationship. And so because of that, the first priority in any time that I might self-disclose, the question I have to ask myself is, is this going to help the client? And if it's not, then I don't disclose. Right. And, and I really need to keep all of their factors in mind. And some, some clients don't want to know anything about me. Some clients, you know, sitting down and talking about the football game the night before for five or six minutes at the beginning of the session really helps them feel like I'm a human being and that, that, you know, there's a real connection and then they can get rolling. So it really varies depending upon the specific situation, but it is something to be cautious about. Um, the ethics of the field stipulate that we have to make sure that we're not doing it for our own reasons, that um, we're not disclosing because we need to talk about something in our own lives as counselors, but sure. that it be everything is focused around what's best for the client. That's something that a lot of counselors develop in uh, a supervision relationship. So um, within the field, after you get your training, you get your license, and you get your first job, you're supervised. And in terms of first jobs, they're really, um, you know, I know pay is an important thing, but finding a job with a supervisor who's really a good supervisor and somebody who you feel comfortable with and that there's a lot you can learn from them is very, very important because mm-hmm. a lot of this, uh, these skills and this, and this um, professional intuition are developed in that relationship and that supervisor can kind of help guide the professional development of a substance use counselor. Oh, I think that's a, that's a positive nugget to, I think, leave our listeners there as opposed to, as you said, maybe looking for other factors, money, location to have that, that mentor, if you will. I think that's a, I think it's an important aspect of all of this. When it comes to overall skills and personality, what would you point to as saying you, you need to have these in order to be successful? It depends on what a person's wanting to do. For instance, if they're wanting to go into private practice, eventually there's a lot of different entrepreneurial skills that would be very important to sure. do well along those lines. But in terms of general substance abuse counseling, I think um, having the right motivation is important. If we're wanting to go in and fix everybody, that's not that, that's, that's asking for burnout or for problems down the road. Um, because the reality is all I can do is control the work I'm doing and to do it the best of my ability um, and to continue growing as a professional. 
Um, but the reality is, is sometimes by the nature of addiction or substance abuse concerns, people don't find health and healing in my office. They might find it in the next treatment episode. In fact, when we're talking about the, the higher severity addiction, the, uh, the trend in the research is to have five to seven times in treatment before somebody finds sustained sobriety. So that is something for people to consider that they will have people that will relapse and, and the nature of addiction is that it does tend to be chronically relapsing and there are those kind of struggles to be aware of. So I think uh, having a, a motivation to really care about people is important and, and to have some empathy. The people, I think if we enter this field wanting to make a lot of money, that, that's just not what's going to happen. Right. But it, it can be very rewarding in terms of the people factor and helping people out and getting to see people make healthy choices is, is awesome. Take us into then a little bit of the process for, you know, maybe finding that first job or, uh, you know, applying in some way. And you mentioned, of course, you know, internships and that sort of thing can really help you along and and get you noticed. Uh, What would you say are any strategies or any important tips that you would give job seekers if they are looking to specifically get into this field? Um, Internships help. A lot of agencies, if they've had you volunteer or do an internship, they kind of get to try you out as a professional and um, some internships um, when somebody's doing the course of their study or even uh, post-internships, externships after they get out of uh, graduate school or out of uh, college can lead to jobs and that's, that's a, a very common pathway. And what I've also found is in that higher demand areas are areas where there's, there's more counselors that it tends to be much more competitive. For example, I, I graduated graduate school from in Chicago and the job competition was was incredible and the mm-hmm. pay was actually quite a bit less and um, when I decided to relocate to New Mexico and work in rural rural healthcare the pay actually went up and the competition went down so hmm. there's a huge huge demand in terms of rural America and healthcare needs and, and specific substance abuse services um, that would probably be the easiest market to get into the more challenging markets would be places like New York or Los Angeles or Chicago where there's a, a lot of people that want to live there and a lot of people want to turn it into the marketplace. Sure. Well, that's terrific insight, I think, for anyone who is interested in, in looking to jump in. I think that's uh, I think that's cool for our listeners to hear. How about if we're taking into, say, a job interview? I mean, does that occur in this field where you're sitting down with the person looking to hire you and, and any tips there, or any key points that you would want to emphasize for those listening? In terms of interviewing, I mean, your general interviewing skills are important, but a lot of jobs also want to kind of determine what kind of person a person is before they hire them because somebody who's coming into the field to make a lot of money is going to have a higher likelihood of burnout or somebody who, um, for example, if somebody was going into a rural community and they just moved there and um, you know, they weren't very well acclimated, that would be somebody who would have a higher likelihood of burning out and that would be a little bit tougher. Okay. Um, so I think you know, definitely your connection to the community is, is helpful to bring into an interview. But sometimes it's, it's not just about having the well-good-looking resume and speaking well of yourself. It's also about those real-life experiences that um, define a person and define a person's resiliency. So that can be helpful as well to bring in. Sure. Stephen, we appreciate all the information you've been able to give us and, and kind of clue us into this profession and what people might be in store for if they did have some interest. Before we finished up the show, we'd like to give our guests the floor for just like a 30-second wrap-up. Uh, anything you want to give our listeners to take away from this conversation that you would think is important, again, related to the industry of substance abuse? Well, within the industry of substance abuse, there is a huge demand, something along the lines of about 10% of people who um, would meet the criteria for, for benefiting and, and severely needing help and don't get it. So only about 10% do actually get treatment 
Um, and, and sometimes the statistics are quite a bit lower. So there's a huge, huge audience need of substance use counselors. There's a huge demand for that, especially in rural settings, but in every setting. And it's a very rewarding career path to work in. You know, I've been in it for over 10 years now, and I, I still very much enjoy it. So I think it's it's definitely worth worth uh, the investment. And some people, you know, if they're not really sure, can try an internship to try out and see what they what it feels like more in the field. Some people also will do the substance abuse license and kind of get a feel for it and then go on to do master, to do graduate school after that. So it can be something that's entering into kind of gradually. All right. Well, that sounds like the perfect place for us to wrap things up here on this edition. This time it was I Want to Be a Substance Abuse Counselor, and we were joined by Stephen Ratcliffe, a licensed professional clinical counselor in New Mexico. Stephen, thanks again for filling us in on the industry. We do appreciate the insight. Thank you. Of course, if you have any comments or questions regarding any of our podcasts here on LJN Radio, just email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Muma. Take care, everybody.